uh, when through the work that we do, meet some extraordinary leaders. You know, I, I'm always interested in seeing if they'll give me half an hour of their time to ask some questions about how they got into business and what, you know, whether they had a sense of vocation, who their influences have been over the years. It's been a privilege, actually, to get that time with them. Some leaders seem to have a kind of special touch, something they have that means they get results where others fail. And what is that special something? Ollie Purnell and his team at organisational consultancy firm Q5 have been interviewing leaders like this for over 10 years to try and understand what it is that makes them so successful. And although publication wasn't the original intention of the interviews, having now amassed a library of them with some pretty impressive people, Q5 has decided to release 28 of their favourites in a book. I heard about this via a series of posts on LinkedIn, and always interested in hearing ideas about what makes great leadership, I invited Ollie onto the show, and this episode is taken from my conversation with Ollie and his colleague Andy Cottrell. But before we got to talking about the interviews, I asked Ollie and Andy to give us a bit of background about Q5. What sets them apart from other consultancies? And how come I've never heard of them before? Do you know, uh, I mean, Andy and I have talked about this a lot over the last uh, few weeks because we're in the, uh, the middle now of the coronavirus pandemic and it makes you think, what is it that you're famous for and what matters most to our clients around the world? And I, I remember growing up, and uh, I've used this analogy a few times, uh, when I was a child, every time an oil well was on fire, or uh, if there was a, an oil platform that had turned over. Uh, and I look back at the Piper Alpha disaster and the first Gulf War when Saddam Hussein set 37 uh, oil wells on fire. There was always one man, one man that came in to save the day in one company. I remember as a child turning to my father saying, you know, Dad, who's this Red Adair guy? Mm. Every time there's a fire... They some Texan guy over in his red helicopter with, you know, Bobby the hand and Jimmy the wheel. And there were sort of five, six, seven of these Texan. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that's not their names. But uh, so, so to your question, I think one of the things you're absolutely right is, is a very saturated market. The big four firms, you look at the, you know, no disrespect to the big four firms, but the Deloitte's, the EY's, the PWC's. Uh, the Accentures, it's quite hard to differentiate, you know, one from the other. They're all big organisations. They hire very good people. But if someone said, well, what's the difference between Deloitte and EY? And I'm speaking as someone with 25 years experience behind me, I wouldn't be able to really tell you the difference. And I, uh, you know, I hope I'm not offending any of your listeners by saying that. So the thing for us is a, in, in that saturated market, it's to be famous for something. It's to be known as uh, Andy talked about the bat phone, you know, being at the end of a call, at the end of a, a text, at the end of a WhatsApp message to senior business leaders who've got a knotty organizational issue. And uh, the, the great thing about being a firm that's, that's not well known but is successful is 
that no one is ever going to read about that little knotty issue in the Sunday Times or in the F the next day because we work incredibly hard, but we operate under the radar. And I think working on these difficult CEO problems, working under the radar uh, has been our, our secret source, our secret success. And, uh, you know, hopefully that may continue through what, you know, 2020 is clearly going to be a very difficult year, I think, for businesses around the world. Mm-hmm. Could, could I just add a couple of, a couple of things to that, Paul, as well? I think, I think, um, and I think the big, the saturated market is a useful frame for that. And, and, and as, as a small, smaller and, and, and growing business, we, cut, we cannot rest on our laurels and we cannot rest on a, a big brand. And we quite like being a bit unknown and known only to um, the kind of secret of, 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 of the business leaders we work towards. Um, but that means we, we absolutely survive based on our reputation and, 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 and um, with those individuals and, and, and their kind of word of mouth um, approval. So we, will run through kind of walls for our clients in that way. And, uh, and, and also knowing what it takes to really run a, an entrepreneurial business as well. Um, so, so knowing, you know, right now we, how do we adapt to the crisis and how do we manage cash flows and our debtor days and, and, and all of that kind of stuff that occasionally, um, in the comfort of a larger organization, people don't necessarily have to have to face that. And I think that flows through to how careful we are and cautious we are with our clients kind of investment uh, in, in terms of supporting su- supporting them, knowing what it takes to to have that kind of entrepreneurial zeal. And that's certainly how we've recruited, you know, some phenomenal Q5ers over the years of people that want that, want that experience of, of knowing more intimately and more firsthand what it takes to grow a business uh, rather than just working on kind of consulting projects that come through um, in, in, in potentially a more comfortable way. Although consulting is an incredibly hard job wherever you are, I think, because it's, it's project based and it's often dealing with big, stressful, um, stressful issues for our clients. So I, I, I wouldn't suggest it's easy anywhere. Mm. You said something though that's sort of intriguing me a bit. You, you talked, Ollie. You talked about being you know, flying under the radar and, and and being very much sort of dedicated to your clients and not necessarily being being uh, sort of too you know too public about your what, what what you do and what you get involved with. So how do people know you exist then? That's a good question. Um, I, it it starts it starts off by doing good work. So if you go back eleven years ago, um, our first ever project project was with the Guardian, uh, you know, the, the British brand, which actually is well known around the world now because it's doing very well in the US and in Australia and other places. Yeah, the the well. newspaper, yeah. Absolutely, the newspaper. And, um, and uh, we did a very good piece of work there for two, two, there were two people who were the CEO at the time was Carolyn McCall, now Dane Carolyn McCall, the CEO of ITV. And the editor-in-chief at the time was Alan Rossbridger, who, uh, who was the editor for 20 years of the Guardian. And both Carolyn and Alan are, um, they're both in the book that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, um, but they're, they're business leaders of note um, with fabulous connections. And by doing excellent work for them, they, we became part of their sort of secret club. Uh, they introduced us to people that they knew and said, we've got some fabulously talented people who can do the work of a McKinsey or a Bain or a BCG, but they don't cost as much. And, um, you know, they'll quietly get on with the work without... Uh, without much of a fanfare. So it really is word of mouth, um, and we built critical mass over a period of time. And, you you know, you sort of fast forward. We, we set the business up in 2009, and it's now 2020. So we're sort of 
technically tiptoeing into our third decade of being a, of being a business. But, but the reality is, um, is always that conundrum. Do you go overtly out, bang the drum and say, look at us, look at the brand, look at what we stand for, look at how important we are, uh, which seems quite vain, or let those business leaders who trust you pass you on to their friends, their connections. Uh, we, 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 you know, we, we'd love to do more brand building, but we're also really proud that if you Google Q5, or you look through the pages of the FT or the Sunday Times, the work that we do, and we, we, work, with, we work with about 100 clients a year around the world, um, you don't read about it. And we're, we're really proud of that. Okay, so you're not, you're not on social media every hour of every day? We are on social media, but the you know we use Instagram to we use Instagram. We, we don't have many followers, and I'm not entirely sure why we're on it. But 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 the young guns in our firm use it to show what a day in the life of a Q fiver is, and uh, they do some great stuff on it. it attracts uh, students into our intern program. Mm. We run a thing called the Youth Panel, which is aimed at 17 year olds, 16 and 17 year olds once they finish their GCSEs, and uh, they we take on. 14 a year and we pay them to come in for four or five days over the course of the year uh, and it's a proper there's a proper exchange of ideas we're interested in what young 16 17 year olds the generation alpha I think is what they are now um, who are you know what media they consume what they're interested in uh, what they like and dislike and we can give them uh, a view of what it's like in the world of business because we work in media retail um, energy, and we give them a little bit of a taste before they go into university uh, about what the big wide world is like. Um, so we use Instagram for that, for attracting the, the Generation Zs and the Alphas into the business. Uh, and then we use LinkedIn um, for talking about some of the webinars that we run, um, talking about some of the services that we offer. And, and I mean, we've used it in the last few weeks to give little um, tasters of some of the interviews we've done for our Magic Sponge book. But I'm not sure it's necessarily the right platform for publishing interviews. Um, but, but um, you know, you, you chanced upon us, I think, uh, on LinkedIn. So it, it obviously has its uses and its values. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's move on to that. Let's talk about that. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I came across you, Ollie, uh, on LinkedIn when you posted uh, one of the first sets of the interviews that you've been putting out. So, so let's talk about that. You've been interviewing leaders for how many years now? For probably about 10 years, for about yeah. 10 years. And this is not as part of work you've been doing with them. This is this is sort of a separate thing. You've known them and you've asked them to, to. Yes, it's, it's sort of it's a it's a you know Andy and I feel the same way about it. Actually, it's a sort of obsession really with the world of business. So that fun that you might have had in childhood, collecting Panini football stickers of footballers and putting them in your album, uh, when you through the work that we do and through the connections that you make meet some extraordinary leaders. You know, I, I'm always interested in seeing if they'll give me half an hour of their time to ask some questions about how they got into business and what, you know, whether they had a sense of vocation, uh, who their influences have been over the years. And most of them, people are happy to give you half an hour of their time. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a privilege, actually, to get that time with them. Mm. And uh, we were doing it originally, uh, not, you know, it really wasn't to write a book. It was to... to 
it was to put in newsletters and things like that. Um, when you know, consulting firms when they, they send you their brochure, when they, when they send you information online about what they do, most of it is is pretty uninteresting. Uh, in, you know, probably including our own. But what's always interesting is the thought piece that might be from a business leader. You know, if you've got, um, you know, you might have uh, Angela Arons, for instance, was the CEO who turned around Burberry. And she did an incredible job. And uh, the, the, the business had something like 42 consecutive quarters of, uh, of double-digit growth. Um, and she has, I mean, she's not at Burberry anymore, but I don't want to talk, to her, talk about her in the past tense. But she had an incredible way with words and a way uh, she could make the business leaders around her, her core team, uh, hang on to every word that she, that she had. And we had the privilege of working at Burberry and serving her some years ago. And it just made me think that the, the individual styles of leaders and the stories they use and the idioms that they place in their language were, was right, worth writing about. And... Um, and uh, as it happens, I don't think Angela will mind me saying, she has turned me down. I've asked her a couple of times to be in the book. But even by turning us down, um, she does so in such a graceful way that you feel, you feel excited to be turned down so gracefully and graciously. <laughs> yeah. the, the other thing, Paul, I wonder if it's, it, it, because it, it links to your early point around how much do we talk about almost our brand and being around on social media is we, we've got, a huge number of very interesting things to say, but people by and large don't really care what a consulting firm has to say, you know, and, and, and I think that's okay. We, we acknowledge that our business, the business leaders that we work for and our clients that we work to are the ones that people want to hear from, you know, people that have, that have grown these brands and businesses. And I think it's that kind of ethos of, of their human stories are really, really important and uplifting for our people to hear about. So we did this project for X, but actually listen to the person that founded it, talk about the story, talk about their stresses, talk about how they work through it. That is, um, that stories are useful and helpful. And, and then if we do share it more widely, it's not us talking about Q5, it's just us sharing a good story from a business leader that everyone can learn and benefit from. Right. Now, as you said, initially, you didn't start gathering them with the view of putting them into a book, but you have now decided you're going to do that and uh, put uh, right. a selection of them into this book you've got coming out in, in May, I think, this year. Yes, I mean, that was the original plan. Unfortunately, because of the lockdown situation, it might be delayed by uh, a month. Um, right, right. But give us, give, us, give us the title. So the title is Magic Sponge. Um, and uh, the, the subtitle is A Collection of Interviews with Inspiring Business Leaders of the 2010s, From Their Tips and Techniques to Their Mag Baggage. Right. Um, but it's called Magic Sponge. Right, and magic sponge, I assume, is a reference, is the sporting reference to the uh, the, the sponge in the, the trainer's kit bag. That's right. Whether whether that that uh, that analogy travels outside of uh, the UK and travels outside a um, demographic of people that remember the 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 the, the, the uh, bucket of water and the sponge, but that was the panacea, wasn't it? Back in back in um, in schoolboy and schoolgirl sport back in the seventies, eighties, probably even the nineties, there was always a bucket of water. With this, uh, this, this sponge that was the panacea to any injury, whether you broke a leg or had a scratch on your on your your face, the magic sponge would be brought onto the pitch and applied um, uh, medically to the yeah. to the injured yeah. star. And, and so they'd, we thought they'd, this would, you know, they'd spring up and, and and carry on as though nothing had happened. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And so, so that we were playing around with the magic sponge analogy. We talk about organizational health and uh, a lot of what we do is, is almost sort of acting as organizational physiotherapy. Some of, some of the businesses have, have been injured because of bad decisions that have been made or because the macroeconomic climate has changed and their business models are broken. So that's about getting them fit again, getting them healthy, getting them back out and succeeding. There are others, a bit like a Djokovic or a Federer or Nadal, who are absolutely at the peak of their performance, who go into each of the tournaments that they, that, that they do, hoping to win it. And they will have those people, those, those sort of nutritionists and those physiotherapists keeping them at the peak of performance. So we thought the magic sponge thing was a fun analogy to use. It was different, hopefully unique enough to grab attention. I've really kind of read 11 of the interviews that you posted on, on LinkedIn, really enjoyed uh, uh, reading those. Um, I think the thing that, that uh, I'd like to hear from you, though, is we can't cover them all, but it'd be great if you could just pick some sam- examples, sample uh, interviews. And um, I think in particular, I'd be interested in any themes you felt were emerging or any key messages that came out. So uh, who wants to start us off? Uh, Ollie, why don't you talk to us about, I know Joe Reed is one that uh, you, you quite like his story. Yeah, Joe Reed. I mean, Joe Reed is, uh, is the biscuit king. He, he, uh, what I love about his story is he's a guy uh, who runs a company called the Island Bakery. Um, and he set this company up in 1994 on the Hebridean Isle of Mull. And uh, by doing so, he kind of ripped up the world. So a couple of things I love about this story. Um, he's appeared on Dragon's Den and he got absolutely no money from, from, the, from the Dragons because they, they scoffed at him, a little bit like uh, Harvard Business Review or the McKinsey Quarterly, because he, he didn't follow the business rules. Normally, you make sure that you have an accessible market and he's on a remote island that you, know, you have to take a boat to get onto the mainland Britain. Yet you can get his biscuits in Waitrose and on BA planes and all sorts. And I think the thing I love about Joe uh, is that he's got an interesting story. He's created a business about something he loves. He loves business. Um, he's created a business that that captures the imagination. So the everything about it, it's solar panels, uh, sustainable energy. Um, he's got a business that he's done on his terms. And it's a multi-million pound business. Yet, although he works incredibly hard, I describe him as an entrepreneur that's created a lifestyle business that people love the product, and he has done it on his terms. Mm. And I think his, his is one I'd recommend reading if you think, well, I want to live on a beautiful island with stunning views. Read his, his words are, are excellent, and, uh, and I think his insights of doing it on his terms are, are, are fantastic. And, and, and yeah. my biscuits. Now, one thing that I know you guys talk about a lot, you have this framework that I know you like to use to, to analyze business success, and you talk about the importance of reach, influence, and contribution. So let's, let's maybe take, start with Joe. Just put his story then in context for those three things. Where do you think he did well against those categories? Um, it's, it's a really good thing because he, he bucked the trend on all of them. Reach, um, he, we talk about influence, reach, and contribution um, because influence is about having tr- trust and authority. And I think he has demonstrated that his biscuits are made only with organic. He wants the purest possible ingredient. Uh, and he lives in the beautiful, unspoiled, uh, unpolluted island of Mull. So in terms of influence, he's saying this is a beautiful brand. It's a, it's a luxury biscuit made only with organic biscuits. 
um, and powered entirely by water and, and, and um, sustainable power. So he's created a name for himself in that whole organic and, and uh, absolutely. Uh, sustainability. Yeah, sustainability. The organic food uh, markets are, are around Europe that he goes to and takes uh, takes the island uh, bakery biscuits too. So he, I would say, is a triumph of building influence in that space uh, and using his story. Using he runs the company with his wife, who's done all the artwork. Theirs is a business where they've created a story. They've taken this wonderful little business to market, and uh, and now people, um, you know, many people. Um, talk about these biscuits being their favorite biscuits and I said yeah, well, he's, he's a fantastic. Yeah. so but what about the reach because it's it's almost like he's he's the anti-reach because he's he's you know he's on this remote island did you say yeah you're absolutely right he's the I would say of all the examples of the leaders in our book uh, he's the one that has not followed the uh, the rule that you have to make sure you've got access to markets and you can extend into new territories um, he He's, he, in the past, has, has gone for organizations like M&S when they were doing their Plan B, looking at, okay, if Plan A is not working, what is happening in the world of sustainability? He was able to use big brands like M&S to, to do a, you know, a, a deal, a distribution deal on his biscuits. Um, and also, he's extended his reach by uh, uh, coming up with a deal with British Airways. So you can find Island Bakery Biscuits in the business class and first lounges of BA. Yeah, well, so that's certainly, that's certainly, certainly reach, fly, fly your product around on planes. That's, uh, that's almost the definition of reach. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you see a few companies these days, the white company do bedding on, uh, in the BA uh, first lounges and the business lounges. So that's where he's been able to extend his reach. But physically, you're right, he's, he's far removed from the action. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he kind of flies in the face of business logic. Yeah, I suppose I suppose the message there is is reach takes different forms. You don't actually necessarily have to be able to physically contact people, but uh, there are other ways. Andy, well, I, I, another one that springs to mind is um, is, is Mike Souter, who who's done many things, and 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 one of which he produced kind of the shortlist and stylist magazines, uh, targeting commuters at a time when many kind of printed newspapers and magazines were folding or, or downsizing. So, like Joe, kind of bucked the trend a little bit, but but actually targeting. Uh, what he described a second mover advantage so the metro mm. news- so just just so people people understand these are free publications aren't they I and mean, they're handed out to people at railway stations and and, and airports absolutely like so so free free to consumers it's what metro newspaper did and made a huge at a, at a, at a um uh, a huge business out of and and mike saw that and saw the opportunity and thought i can copy that and, and just elevate the brand a little bit and target um, specific types of commuters with uh, stylist magazine and shortlist magazines, which are less news uh, uh, news content and, and higher value content that advertisers would then pay a higher premium for to target those particular readers who, who, who therefore the advertiser was trying to reach. And, 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 and those three aspects of reach, influence and contribution, the reach in terms of finding those, that market and getting to them, getting access to them at the tube stops and commuter points and, and, and train stations, et cetera, where they could, you could really access them. Um, the influence in terms of the authority and, and the voice of the writers and the brands that appeared in those, in those publications. And then the contribution, you know, ultimately the advertising revenue was, was enough to, 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 to make a, a decent return because again, in, 
it, it wasn't trying to target everyone across the board and the advertisers would pay more for knowing that their uh, their content would be in the hands of these demographics of, of people of a certain age, of a certain means, with a certain disposable income um, that could generate a return, you know, at, at a time when, as I say, many other uh, publications were having to, to go in the other direction and, and shut up shop. Mm. You mentioned that, that phrase, second mover advantage, and the idea being that, that Mike Suter didn't invent the freemium model, I think they, they, they call it, but he followed on uh, on the coattails of, of, uh, of Metro. Um, just talk to us a little bit more about that then. I mean, is that basically saying don't go, wait for someone else and then follow their best example? Is that, is that a message? Yeah, and I think I think there's a lot there's a lot in it in it a lot written about it. But in terms of a lot written about first mover advantage, you know, and and and, and the advantage there is clear. But also the cost is incredibly high, and 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 the no one's tried it before, so the lessons can be quite painful. And I think there's a there's a theme around learning from other people's lessons. Uh, Ollie Olson, who's a, the entrepreneur and founder of the Office Group, talks about learning lessons from looking at others and looking at competitors rather than having to make all of your own mistakes. And I think that second mover advantage is you can see what worked and what didn't in terms of in terms of what someone like a, a Metro did or anyone breaking into a new market. And it kind of proves the concept a little bit and they will make uh, great judgments, but also learn a lot. So by second mover advantage, you can capitalize on that without having to kind of uh, suffer the pain yourself. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Powell, Ollie. Now, I know that's an interview very dear to your heart. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, I, I mean, the, the reason why I, I love that interview is because he's one of the initiators of our age. And um, for those that don't know Jonathan Powell, he was the chief of staff to Tony Blair when uh, New Labour came to power in 1997. And he'd had a very interesting career up to that point. He'd done a, a various things. He'd been in the Foreign Office. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd worked in the U.S. He was a university friend of Bill Clinton. So he's a, a guy with f- fantastic stories anyway. Uh, and I think what was interesting about Jonathan is um, he, in, 90, in 1997, was absolutely core to the negotiation between um, the uh, Sinn Féin, uh, uh, the Northern Irish um, uh, politicians, the Republic of Ireland and Britain in coming up with the Good Friday Agreement and having to spend many nights negotiating with people like Martin McGuinness and Jerry Adams um, and building trust with these people. And if, you know, for those of you that remember what it was like living in, the, in, in Britain uh, back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was a totally different time to now. These were people who, you know, who had been central to the IRA cause and yet Jonathan was having to use the, the natural talent he had at finding common ground and uh, and it wasn't was just it wasn't just between Sinn Fein and, and the Republicans and, and the British government. I mean, there were the the um, uh, the, the Irish loyalists as well. Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely, and of course, uh, you know, we, we had a, a, a American diplomats, American politicians. There were quite a few people involved in that process. Um, and what I think is interesting is that it was a very, very. We all know, you know, it was 20, 23 years ago. It was a very successful process. Uh, we've had uh, 23 years of, of, of peace since then. And um, I think what's interesting is when Blair stepped down in 2008, um, this, this uh, you know, Jonathan could have continued with his uh, civil service career 
Um, but he but he didn't. And uh, after a little bit of time working in an investment bank, which I think he found the pace of that, that rather pedestrian and sedate, uh, he back into the work that he'd done um, uh, on the Good Friday Agreement. But he set up this this enterprise called Intermediate, where he now takes the skills that he learned, the the natural capabilities he, he's got, and he's taken it into the sort of the, the, the private sector in in a way and acts as an interlocutor between uh, state governments uh, and organizations and, you know, terrorist organizations. Mm. So I think he's an example of someone who has uh, developed uh, incredible skill sets and capabilities in the public sector that has now made a business, a really successful and incredibly important business out of those skill sets. Mm. Um, and uh, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting interview. It is an interesting interview. I enjoyed that one as well. I mean, it, and it's interesting. It is a good example of influence, although uh, you, you, no one could say that he did, he did it deliberately. I mean, he ended up, as you say, getting that reputation of one of the greatest negotiators of our age um, and is now able to, to use that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. That's a, a, a good example of someone building influence uh, in that important moment and then using it to power the next 23 years of his career. Yeah. Now, one interview I... I I enjoyed, but also I took away a, a key message from was the one with Helen Nash. And uh, Andy, I wonder if you could talk to us about that in particular, her idea of of chapters and the idea of, of chapters in one's life and using that to make decisions as to where one should go in one's one's career and life generally. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Helen's, you know, a really impressive individual who's who's had a number of kind of big, big corporate roles and out in Australia, Australia now and where she had a lot of her executive kind of career. And I think uh, her, her reflection on that was looking at um, dividing your career and your life into chapters and, and, and thinking about how the, the pressure of um, having it all at the same time, or that kind of, you know, uh, often for people with balancing personal and professional lives and, and competing priorities, you know, that that kind of myth of having it all. And, and, and actually, um, you know, you can have it all, but not all at the same time necessarily. And thinking about your, your, your life as, and, and your career as seasons where, um, you know, sometimes you will be yeah, investing absolutely in, in 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 your personal and your career growth, and, and and that will be the priority. But but you need to maintain that balance in 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 other times, and and have the time to kind of reflect and and adapt what's important to you. And 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 that for me was a very healthy way of 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 looking at it um, for individuals, and certainly in you know in our business, um, you know, we, we we encourage people to do that and think about those will evolve over time and, 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 and be aware when you think you're kind of transitioning into a different chapter and, and, and how your priorities might change. Uh, Ollie actually talks a lot about a kind of personal graphic equalizer that every individual might have around personal preferences and, 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 and scales of, 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 of how much you might need to be investing in your, your family life, how much you're investing in personal development, how much you want to, you know, travel and 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 go overseas versus 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 remain more have have more routine and certainty to your life and i think that's a really helpful way of thinking about um one's career and business in 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 that it, it that won't be the same at all times and that evolves throughout what, what helen refers to as chapters right right and i like that the graphic equalizer and i think the thing that i took away from the helen nash interview and, and her idea of chapters was to recognize that 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 chapters do come to a close mm. and that's the point to maybe you know borrow ollie's metaphor to then you know tweak your your graphic equalizer 
to say, okay, well, it's a bit more family time now, or maybe I need to, to focus on, on, on personal development or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That personal self-reflection of, of going through that process or, or forcing it's what classic kind of coaching does, I guess, is saying, right, what's yeah. important now in this, in the next three years, what are the things that are going to be more important to you? And that will evolve. And yeah, as you say, the closing and opening of chapters is, is, a, is, is a helpful way of, of marking that, that shift. Right. And uh, just two more, I think. Um, Ollie, talk to us about Ricardo Zaccone and uh, Candy Crush. I, know, I certainly know that game. Candy Crush. Yeah. So Ricardo was um, Ricardo is one of these debonair um, business leaders who speaks a number of languages. Um, he, he's, a, he's a really good guy and he's a very humble man, although he's one of the richest people I know now because he sold his to Activision Blizzard a few years ago and made a fortune but he was never in it for the money and uh, he started his career in consulting which obviously Andy and I are consultants uh, so it's always interesting to see people who've been consulting uh, go go out of consulting after a few years and uh, become entrepreneurs and set their own businesses up and I think he used his consulting career to to be a generalist he didn't want to start as a specialist he didn't want to learn a trade he wanted to get a rich and varied experience as a consultant working around the world. And all, I think a lot of, uh, of people who've worked in consulting will appreciate that they work with some really interesting people, some very talented people, and usually you're in product teams. So you might work on three or four projects a year. So you get to work in lots of teams each year. And over that period of time, Ricardo would have met some really talented people uh, and therefore was in a position a few years later to create his own business, King, with the talented people that he knew and uh, set up a business that, that extended on the topic of reach. I mean, Candy Crush was, uh, still is ubiquitous. Everyone, my wife became addicted to it. Um, it, it became that uh, if you were on the tube in the morning, you notice half the people in the carriage were playing Candy Crush. So he was able to create a business that had a, that, that made a lot of money that extended its reach a, a, across continents uh, at a point where they then sold the business to a big American company. So his is a triumph, I think, of brain power, energy, diversity, uh, international and global thinking, and and taking a good idea out to the mass market. Yeah, I think I think the like I liked about his story. I mean, one he sort of did it did it backwards in this. He started off as a consultant and then went out and 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 and, and did his own business, which is probably the, the opposite way to where most people do it where they, they they work in some profession or other and then become a consultant later in their career but that you made the point there is that he was a generalist and wanted to do lots of things but then uh, I think I've heard you say he then said well okay I really like doing these things so he focused in on that and and as a result I suppose what he was doing was discovering what his influence should be because he became specialized in that way and that that, that was a message I took from that one it's a good way of if, if you want to know where your influence should be, well, then look back on the things that you you enjoy doing. Yeah, and just just on that, Ricardo actually talks explicitly about u- using consulting um, uh, as that route to. Uh, he always knew he'd do something different, but using consulting as a way to learn new things without closing doors, you know, gain experience across a broad range. Um, but I think he probably always had that kind of fire in his belly to do something more entrepreneurial as well. So again, that kind of foresight to to think long term is definitely there. Mm. And then finally, unfortunately, we can't talk about all of them, but uh, we've just picked a selection. Um, Alison Lonis, Ollie. Yes, 
It's Alison Lonis, who is um, who is American but lives in the UK. She's the president of Netta Porter and Mr Porter, which I think a lot of your listeners will recognise as one of those luxury digital fashion uh, retailers. Uh, and you know, design business designs an amazing product. And Alison, what was interesting about Alison's story is that she has followed. She cites her mother and father as, as incredibly important influences to her and uh, lots of the people we've interviewed talk about people that they've worked with professionally but she, she talks about her mother being a fantastic sounding board and uh, you know a, a, a genius when it came to the working world and that her father was her go-to for, for confidence and to help her with negotiation and it's always nice hearing someone's personal story so she you know her own influence has been uh, has been brought out of her family background. I, I know one of the things that you like about Alison's story as well, and one of the things that she thinks is, is is important is this idea of not being a slave to your CV. Just just talk us through that point. Yes, I think there's a tendency for people in business, uh, particularly at the start of your career, to think what's going to look good on my CV. Where should I start? Should I go to to, to you know one of the big uh, the the P and Gs, the Unilevers, uh, the 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 M and Ss. Um, and Alison's feedback has always been, well, I mean, CVs are important, but don't be slavishly devoted to it. Um, you know, if there's an opportunity where you can find an intersection uh, between your interests, your hobbies, your passion, something that you can make some money from, then that's, that, that is where you should be uh, focusing attention on, because you put your emotional energy into it, your intellectual energy into it, and you are likely to succeed by doing that. And I thought that was advice, certainly advice I follow myself. And I think that is something that she, I mean, she's been incredibly successful and she's the, you know, the, the number one person at uh, uh, Nessa Porter. So that's really great. Six really great stories there. There are 28 coming in the book, I think, aren't there? That's right. Yeah. But the thing is, of course, um, when, when you were collecting these, you, you didn't do it to produce a book but but now you've decided to put them together into a book why have you decided to do that now you're absolutely right we did it at the time as a as an interesting thing as we came across these 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 characters these individuals these business leaders and we wanted to tap into their insights and share it with with our own team and our uh, our immediate community uh, and and why package it into a book i think when we had our 10 year anniversary as a firm we we allowed ourselves a moment of reflection looking back into 10 years in business and quite a remarkable 10 years for businesses uh, at the time. And we saw we had all of this fantastic content that hadn't um, been shared as widely as perhaps it could, could, could have been. And, uh, and we wanted to doff our caps to um, some of the friends of the firm, some of the interesting people that we work with along the way uh, and, and share some of their insights because they might be helpful to people. Mm. And uh, uh, we should say, of course, not everybody that you interviewed are clients that you worked with. No, absolutely not. There's 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 a mixture. Many are, um, but there are also people that, um, that 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 have been introduced to us, or or or, or we worked in similar areas at similar times. And and again, rather opportunistically, kind of took took the moment at some point over the previous ten years of saying, actually, it would be really interesting and in sitting down for for half an hour and. And capturing some of, some of your thoughts and and, and reflections uh, that, you, that we could share. Yeah, no, it's an it's an impressive body of work. So, um, when can people get hold of the book, and how? 
So we, we've packaged it all up, uh, an abridged version, and it's now uh, ready uh, in the print run. Uh, obviously, the current COVID situation has shifted that back a little bit, but we're hopeful in the next few months later in the year that we'll be sending it out to friends of the firm and obviously the people that contributed. And uh, anyone else that wants a copy, all of the proceeds will be going to some of the charitable foundations that, that we support, and we'd love to, to share it as widely as possible. So please do get in touch. Right. And will it, be, will it be available through the usual outlets, Amazon and other booksellers who are available? Yes, absolutely. Brilliant. Oh, well, I wish you the very best of luck with it. I certainly enjoyed reading the, the 11 interviews I looked at, and I'm looking at, forward to, to reading uh, the rest. So uh, just for me to say thanks very much to Ollie Purnell. Thank you, Paul. And to Andy Cottrell. Cheers. Thanks again to Ollie and Andy. And if you want to know more about Q5 or the book, you'll find contact details in the show notes. I'm Paul Gisby. And this has been a Talking Leaders production. We work with leaders who want to be heard, understood, and to build trust. Goodbye.